Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. You promised me you would sit down at this appointed time and write your first letter ever. I did? Okay, well, first let me text Jonathan. Greg wants me to write a letter because old totes awk. So first, grab a sheet of paper and an envelope. Mm -mm, I hate orange fruit. That's a cantaloupe. An envelope is what you put the letter in. And then you write the address in the middle and your return address in the upper left and put a stamp. Oh, my God, I'm exhausted. This is exhausting. Can I just lie down on the floor for a few minutes? We're going to be here for hours, right? You haven't written anything yet. Yeah, but just looking at it all, it's like a, it's like assembling a bookcase from Ikea. I'm totally panicking. Do you have a paper bag I can blow into? Humans communicated that way for centuries. Yeah, and then it was eradicated, right? Like smallpox. It probably causes smallpox. Oh, my God, I'm getting smallpox. Feel my forehead, Greg. You cannot get smallpox from writing a letter. Oh, Eleanor Roosevelt wrote thousands of letters, and look what happened to her. She died at 78. Struck down in her prime from infected paper cuts and the glue on those antelopes. Envelopes. Uh, I've been offline for seven minutes. I can't feel my legs. People probably think I'm dead because I haven't updated my Facebook page. I can't do this, Greg, but other people can. I acknowledge that there are people who can communicate in this way. And do you know what those people are called? Uh, letter writers? I was going to say freaks, but yes, letter writers will do. So get ready for a show that deals in some way I cannot fathom with this bizarre and totally outmoded practice. And now his love letters from Admiral Nelson are up on TMZ. Colin McEnroe. They're not exactly love letters. We were in boarding school together and, you know, we were gay for this day. Actually, uh, Horatio Nelson was one of the most prolific letter writers ever. I mean, just thousands and thousands and thousands of letters. But there, there throughout history have been people who've written thousands and thousands of letters. Now, this is not entirely a show about letters. It, I'll tell you the genesis of this show. Um, we were told... Uh, that, uh, well, I, I'll even explain it even more. There's something called Greenwood Counseling Referrals. It's a nonprofit referral service located in Litchfield, Connecticut. It connects people in need of mental health services with the proper professionals, regardless of their ability to pay. So that's a good thing. So we got um, an email from a guy named Chris Cooper, who's actually a spokesman for Tom Foley, which is kind of interesting because Tom Foley is kind of like an A.R. Gurney character. Anyway, the whole idea was that they're having this fundraiser, uh, and it's uh, June 27th at the Warner Theater in Torrington. Uh, it's a production of Love Letters. Uh, A.R. Gurney has donated this production uh, of his iconic play, Love Letters, uh, to them uh, so that they can you know, benefit from it. Uh, James Earl Jones and Stockard Channing will be the cast. Uh, and it starts at 7.30 with drinks and dinner to follow. And if you want to know more about it, what should they do? Well, I've got the phone number here. You could just maybe even Google Greenwood Counseling Referrals. Uh, there's an email uh, address. It says greenwoodpresents at gmail.com. I'll try, I'll try to bring that all up later, too. Anyway, anyway, Chris Cooper said, you know, 
maybe you could do something about this benefit. And he mentioned a couple of things. And he goes, yeah, it's even possible we could get A.R. Gurney uh, as a guest for you. And I said, well, if you can give me A.R. Gurney, I'll do anything you want. Well, it turned out we could get A.R. Gurney. He's with us now. We're, uh, let me just tell you a little bit about the rest of the show, though. We're going to add to the conversation pretty quickly. Uh, another playwright and novelist, his name is Mark Dunn. He's the author uh, of... Um, LMNOP, among other books, uh, LMNOP is significant because it's about letters in two different ways. Uh, it's about letters. I mean, it's an, uh, an epistolary novel. Uh, it's also about letters in the sense that it's about letters of the alphabet and what can happen to them. Uh, a little bit later in the show, too, we're going to talk to Travis White. He's a student at Central Michigan University and the founder of something called Letter for Better, where young people who have exactly as much experience writing letters as the woman in that introduction um, write letters often to total strangers. I mean, the strangers just get these letters, actual letters, written letters. All right. So anyway, that's enough introduction, uh, and uh, it's time to move on and actually do the show. A.R. Gurney is with us. I probably don't have to tell you who he is, but he's an American playwright and novelist. He's written almost 50 plays. He may be writing a play right now uh, while he's talking to us. Uh, These include uh, Love Letters, The Dining Room, The Snowball, The Cocktail Party. I could go on. Uh, And uh, he's a member of the Theater Hall of Fame and the American Academy of Arts and Letters and all that uh, good stuff. Uh, A.R. Gurney, or uh, I guess one one calls you Pete, right? Is that uh, Betsy Kaplan calls you Pete anyway? That no, that's correct. Uh, that's a nickname uh, that I've had all my life, so I'm I'm delighted to be called Pete. Um, I want to just begin talking a little bit about love letters because it is the occasion of this benefit and the occasion uh, of our conversation. But I, I want to talk about many other things besides. Um, it, it's almost in the First Amendment at this point that one has the constitutional right to appear in love letters by A.R. Gurney. I mean, so (laughs) many people have done this, and in so many combinations. And uh, James Earl Jones, who will be doing it, uh, as we said, uh, in Torrington, uh, did it uh, with Elizabeth Taylor on at least one occasion. I mean, are there particular combinations that you're either aware of or that you have have seen that that struck you as, as either... Uh, either awe-inspiring, like Elizabeth Taylor and James Earl Jones, or or just unbelie- uh, just unbelievably unexpected. Well, uh, I, there are many productions I haven't seen but have heard about mm-hmm. that uh, sound, sounded wonderfully weird to me. But uh, I've seen many, many productions of it, and it always comes out in a different way because uh, the actors are different. Uh, so uh, I, I wouldn't want to productions are like my children. I don't want to say one's better than the other, but there have been plenty of weird evenings. But the place, for some reason, seems to help give actors a chance to act and, and, and to help the evening pay off. Yeah, it's this wonderfully elastic play in the sense that although these two characters are very, very, um, you know, noticeably who they are, uh, it also, there's, there's maybe room for, for each actor to do something. I suppose you could say that with anything. There's something about this that attracts all kinds of combinations. It's almost as though it gives actors a chance to play out uh, a specific relationship. So you do have instances where people who are, are already known for doing something else together, Timothy Hutton and Elizabeth McGovern were together in Ordinary People. They did love letters. Larry Hagman and Linda Gray were together on the TV show Dallas. They did love letters. It's, I, I, I don't know if it's ever happened, A.R. Gurney or Pete Gurney, but w- one wants to see Bill and Hillary Clinton do love letters, right? <laughs> uh, one wants that a great deal, and maybe they will. The governor of California, whose name I've forgotten, the one 
two two governors before Brown. Gray, maybe uh, Gray he, Davis? Gray Davis, maybe. Yes, yeah. Gray Davis. He did it with his wife. Mm-hmm. He, he, he put certain restrictions on it. There's an occasional four-letter word. He felt he couldn't say that. But he did it, and he told me he had a great time doing it. So uh, there have been some weird performances performers and some wonderful ones. When it was first done, I thought, well, we have to sort of cast it down the center of the fairway. And actually, Stockard Channing, who's doing it at Torrington, was one of the first performers of it. She did it with John Rubenstein at that time. But uh, I was at a party when Elaine Stritch came up to me, and um, she said, I want to do that blankety-blank play of yours. And I I didn't want to say, you're a little old. So I said, well, who did you think you'd like to do it with? And she said, I want to do it with Jason Robards, and I've already spoken to it, to him about it. And he said, I'd be delighted. So suddenly the, the casting opportunities uh, opened up in an entirely new way. I think the oldest couple that's ever done it was uh, E.G. Marshall and um, Maureen O'Sullivan, and they both were in their 90s or very close to it when they did. And the youngest couple that your audience might know, and their kids do it in school, but the the youngest couple would, then this would be 20, 25 years ago, would be Matthew Broderick and Helen Hunt, uh, who who did it in Boston for a week, uh, and I think they were in their early 20s. Well, I mean, in, in, because the letters span a lifetime, you either have to at some point pretend to be a lot older than you really are or a lot younger That's uh, right. than you really are. So, I mean, age becomes less of a material factor That's when, right. when you think about it that way. Um, I should say, um, I, I've done this play. <laughs> Everybody's done this play. Uh, so have you done it? I've done, I've done love letters, yeah. So, um, I mean, one performance, one performance of love, yeah. love letters. But and th- that often happens as well. I mean, for a charity sure. event, just as it's happening here. You know, the, the thing that's interesting, too, is that like so many... Um, Pete Gurney plays, it also explores a very specific world, a very specific milieu. So there, you know, ag- uh, an agonizing se- uh, sequence happens, uh, you know, in New Haven at Yale uh, with, I, I, I haven't looked at the play for a while, but I think she's staying at the Taft Hotel. These are all very familiar <laughs> trip, right. trip wires that if you are from a specific background, uh, you, you know, the, these, these get kicked in this. But, but that, that makes it interesting, the, universa- the universality of the casting. It Despite that, despite the fact that these people are very, very classically wasps of, of a certain era, everybody can do that play. Why is that possible? Well, I think you can do two things. First place, you don't have to learn a lot of lines, mm-hmm. right? You, you don't have to stand around or move into a particular place that a director tells you you're sitting there. <laughs> so, so I think that it, 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 you, can, you can read and you can concentrate on what you're reading and at the same time you can be yourself and we go and and when you did it an audience didn't want to just see the story Mm -hmm. or hear the story they wanted to see you and how you did it so you there's a kind of interaction between the performer and the play which you wouldn't normally get if you had had to learn your lines and pretend totally to be the character I want to come back to the letters in a second, particularly when we add Mark Dunn uh, to this conversation. But um, just, you know, talking a little bit about, you know, I have this picture of you that uh, is completely inaccurate. I'm sure that you never watch television. Uh, you don't use a computer. Um, 
And, uh, and I, I don't know whether that's right or wrong, but I find myself wondering, because so much of your work is about social change, about the, the change in the way American life is lived and, and who's got the power um, and, and who's having to, to give up power. And I, I watch shows like Mad Men now, which are set, you know, in a real kind of A.R. Gurney world in some ways and are very much about a generation of people adjusting to massive social change and to the falling uh, of various shibboleths and the falling of various you know, towers from which they flew their banners. And, and, I, and I wonder if, if you watch that, too, and think, well, I've been writing about that for four decades. <laughs> I don't watch that for various reasons, but I, 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 you're, you've absolutely nailed down what I've discovered in my golden years. It was my theme. Before, I used to just write it. Now I'm much more aware of what I'm writing about the... the the nature of a particular culture, which we'll call the was culture, mm. and the decline, decay, and struggle of that culture, either uh, to, uh, to reassert itself in ways or to say goodbye. And uh, uh, that's what I can't seem to get away from when I write. Now, as far as love letters are concerned, it deals with that subject a little, but at the heart of love letters, and another reason it works so well, that the culture I'm writing about was a letter-writing culture. We had to write all the time. I, for example, went away to school. I had to write my parents once a week, and if I didn't, I'd hear about it, not simply from them, but from the headmaster of the school. Your parents called. You didn't write this week. So, And we lived in a, a, a I grew up in a kind of wartime culture, first World War II and then the Korean War. I, 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 enlist, uh, I was in the Navy for the Korean War, and I had to, again, write home, and people wrote me. But we also went to single-sex uh, schools where girls were also in single-sex schools. So the way we communicated when we weren't there was through letters. Mm. And our grandparents insisted on hearing from us, and my grandparents insisted that we write different letters to each one, because, as my grandmother said, we're different people. You're going to say different things to me in your letter than you do to your grandfather. So that, that's the world I grew up in. I hope I'm not boring you by... Uh, by uh, talking about it. By no means. And, I mean, parenthetically, I would say it's even now more delightful that you don't watch Mad Men because it's very specifically about a group of men coming out of the Korean War and re-entering civic life in, in, in New York in that era. But anyway, you know, one of the questions that I have and that I ask myself, too, is, you know, obviously we, we, we continue to live in an era of change, but you sort of wonder, does, it, does that whole battle ever end? I mean, you look at some things that you write that are set in specific eras, and, and you, you think about 2014, and you think, well, is it exactly the same thing now if somebody has a Japanese fiancé? Yeah, you know? yeah. is, is it exactly the same thing now if mom's having an affair with an Italian guy? Um, <laughs> it, it's, you know, and obviously if mom's having an affair with anybody, it's a pretty big deal, but I mean, I mean, obviously, in family furniture, it's a big deal that it's uh, the guy's Italian. So he's either <laughs> going to become a, a politician or a gangster, I think, is uh, is your character's line. But, you know, in some ways, I feel like as, as much social change as exists now, there are ways in which nothing changes, that, that in some way there's still an invisible line of resistance, at least in certain elements 
and, and not, you know, really, really rarefied elements necessarily of society, but just elements of society that in some ways it's still 1910 here. I don't know. Am I making any sense at all? Well, I, I'm not sure it's still 1910, but I do agree with you that, that cultures change, try to hold on to themselves but and not change, and, and that they're normally, particularly in our country, which is so fluid, uh, a different culture can take over and assume some of the roles of the preceding culture. For instance, someone was here today to, to help me fix my computer, which I do use, okay. and he, he happens to be Chinese-American. And we were talking about his children are doing very well in school, and I was talking about how the, the, the Chinese, the, or let's say the Asian cultures are doing so well in this country, but in some ways they're winning all the prizes that were once won by the Jewish community and before that by the wasps and that some of their values are very much the same. On the other hand, uh, you know, in, in 1960, when John F. Kennedy was elected president, uh, uh, you know, there was a sense, the religious historian Sidney Alstrom says, that's, that's the collapse, that signaled the collapse uh, of the Protestant hierarchy, that it ruled America for its entire existence prior to that. Except <laughs> that... You know, it was another, I mean, basically after Kennedy was handed back to white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, it was really another 48 years before the election of Barack Obama that somebody who didn't fit that mold got another chance at it. I guess that's why I ask whether things really do change. Well, they, I mean, you could say, I don't want to sound too cultivated, but you could say that Barack Obama is plus royaliste que le roi, more royalistic <laughs> than the than the king. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's behaving in in a in a very just uh, 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 dignified and uh, I mean, he, he's behaving like Woodrow Wilson. Uh, so that uh, yes, he's taking on it's a very exciting, but also he has some of the values that he's subsumed from these from the cultures that he grew up in. Yeah, it's, it's almost as if you can be uh, of a different identity in certain ways, but you better learn that grammar somehow, right? There's... <laughs> yeah, do you have to learn it or does it come naturally? Now, I, I, I listened to, you were talking to someone about letter writing, that person did not like letter writing. Right. But it, it, I think it comes in some way naturally when people had to learn penmanship. Mm-hmm. I grew up, I had to learn penmanship. I had to, because I was going to have to do that later on. And even today, uh, I think if when we write, say, sympathy letters to people, we're not going to do that on the computer. and We're not going to send an email saying, I'm sorry your husband died. You're going to write it, and you're going to write it with a pen, and preferably liquid ink, and your personality shows through the way you write, whether you're messy, neat, or nate, whatever it is. So when the culture teaches that, then all those things tend to follow. Now, the culture teaches a different thing now, Facebook and all the rest of it. And that, I'm just, I'm not sure where that's going to take us. But I noticed there was an article in the New York Times urging people to learn penmanship because it makes you better readers. And let's say if you're a better reader, you might be a better person. 
Um, we're talking to Pete Gurney. We're going to take a quick break here. We're going to come back. We're going to add Mark Dunn to this conversation. We're going to talk more about letters. We're also going to talk about more about different ways to tell a story and some of the ways that Pete Gurney has introduced American theater to uh, of telling a story. All right, we're back. Are we back? Now we're back. Now we're back. It sounds like we're back. All right, we're talking to uh, Pete Gurney, uh, the American playwright and novelist. Uh, he is, we should once again mention the occasion for this. The reason uh, we have this opportunity is that he's don- donated his iconic play, Love Letters, uh, to the Greenwood Counseling Referrals Organization, a nonprofit referral service uh, connecting people in need of mental health services with professionals, regardless of their ability to pay. And so on June 27th at the Warner Theater in Torrington, James Earl Jones and Stockard Channing uh, will perform the play at starts at 7.30. Drinks and dinner uh, to follow. Well, it sounds like a great evening, actually. Um, we should say, uh, uh, Pete Gurney, before we bring Mark Dunn into this conversation, that uh, Love Letters has a long and storied and wonderful uh, Connecticut history. I mean, not only are you, I think, probably right now sitting somewhere in Connecticut, but wasn't it done th- after you did it with Holland Taylor? Wasn't it first then done at the Long Wharf Theater? A- absolutely correct, and I really admire your research. I mean, it was done. First, Holland Taylor and I did it at the New York Public Library. I, we had no idea how it would work. It, I had sent it into the New Yorker because I thought I had written an epistolary novel. <laughs> and uh, the New Yorker sent it right back saying, we don't publish plays. So I thought, and my agent suggested, maybe it is a play. So we tried it out. But even then, we tried it out. It seemed to work very well. But then... Uh, Nothing. Nobody seemed to pick it up until Arvind Brown at the at the Long Wharf called me up and said, "We're going to try this." And opening night, Joanna Gleason was supposed to do it with John Rubenstein, but she had gotten a call from Woody Allen saying he needed her for another another uh, shot in the movie they were making. I can't tell you the movie. So this they were about to open and. Uh, the director, John Tillinger, called up a neighbor of his, Ann McDonough, who's acted in a lot of my plays, and said, can, can you come down and read this play, and, we'll, and, and the critics are going to be here. We're opening it. And she said, well, I'll come down. She said, but I'm eight months pregnant. Do, do you care? And he said, not at all. We'll sit you at a table. Nobody will know or care. If they do, it won't make any difference. So she opened it with John Rubenstein. It got good reviews. And But then we discovered that people, because Arvin Brown had cast it with other people, nobody wanted to be in it for too long, that we discovered that people, the same audience would come back to see how other actors would do it. And so it became quite a success at the Long Wharf. 
Um, let's, uh, since you used the magic words, uh, epistolary novel, let's add to this conversation Mark Dunn. Mark Dunn's a playwright and novelist. His books include LMNOP, which we'll be talking about, and American Decameron. His plays include Bells and Five Tellers Dancing in the Rain. And Mark Dunn, I think it's fair to say, uh, based on our previous intelligence, that you're as excited to be talking to Pete uh, Gurney as I am. Oh, I, I actually I actually wanted to say that it's taken me 25 years to to tell Pete how much I enjoyed the cocktail hour, which I count among my favorite plays. That was a that's one of those special theater experiences. And, and Pete Green, well, thank the, the, you very much, Mark, and I wish you all the luck uh, the luck on your epistolary novel. Well, his epistolary novel, Element OP, is uh, is already uh, having uh, its luck, and it's been around for a while now. And Mark Dunn, you should quickly explain uh, to Pete Gurney the nature of this novel. It's both epistolary, and therefore in the form of letters, and also about letters. Yeah, somebody called it a a novel in letters, which is kind of a fun way to describe it, because... um, the book is is epistolary. It's 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 letters written by various characters back and forth between each other, um, but it but they're written on a fictitious island in which laws get passed in which people aren't allowed to use certain letters of the alphabet. Um, <laughs> at first, the Z is is outlawed, and then, and then other other letters are outlawed until you get to the point in which um, the language is basically just disappearing um, f- from intercourse between these people. So what you've got is. Um, is a situation in which there are letters, but there are also letters that are, that are hungry for, for letters of the alphabet to use to just have discourse between people. <laughs> that sounds great. Does, does, the, does the reader, I won't say the audience, does the reader have to do a lot of work to figure out what's being said with these missing letters? Well, not only does the reader have to do a lot of work, but the poor, the poor novelist had to do a lot of work, too. Because once a letter is gone, it's gone, and I can't use it anymore. So with each chapter, a new letter of the alphabet disappears. Oh, boy. So that sort of pool of letters of the alphabet that I can use to tell the story basically gets smaller and smaller. That sounds and great. We're all, we're all kind of working together on that one. <laughs> you know, Pete Kearney, you asked about uh, an audience uh, and then corrected yourself to reader. But interestingly, and, and Mark Dunn, I, I have to apologize that uh, I was getting ready for a, a bicycle trip in, in Europe right when this thing uh, was being staged uh, down at the Norma Terrace Theater in Chester. But but somebody adopted LMNOP uh, as a musical. In fact, we'll hear a little song uh, being sung, I think, in the musical by, by Ella. Let's hear a little bit of that song. I'll be real. What's the big deal? Why all this frenzy and fuss? Here's what you do. Slap on some glue. Nothing more to discuss. Wouldn't it be nice if such simple advice could solve so efficiently the enigma, the conundrum that is me? So that's a little bit from the musical version of LMNOP. And, and that, sounds, that sounds great. That's wonderful. Yeah, we we wanted. I missed it down in Chester uh, because I was I was leaving right around that time, uh, Mark Dunn. But I were we're eager to see it restaged at some point uh, as as soon as possible. Um, yeah, go ahead. Well, the the, uh, the playwright. I mean, the uh, yeah, he he actually wrote the book and the lyrics. Um, Scott Burkell and, and the composer uh, Paul Lazel basically came to me over ten years ago and said, "We want to option your novel. We want to turn it into a musical." 
<laughs> and, and I was flattered, and they gave me some of their stuff to listen to, to, to tell me if they had the chops to pull this thing off. And I've sort of been riding in the back seat in their fast-moving car for, for quite a few years now, and they got the production at good speed, which was very exciting, and they're going to have another one in Houston um, next year. And if they're on a Broadway track, you know, I, I don't know when they'll finally get there, but uh, I'll, I'll certainly be there, you know, uh, with my pom-poms. <laughs> happy to see what they're doing with it. And what's really interesting is that, you know, the the fact that I had to write this book um, with one hand and then probably both hands tied behind my back um, to write the songs and also the uh, the, the dialogue, uh, the, the poor librettist had to basically tie the same hand behind his back because mm-hmm. so many of these songs are sung under these um, restrictions and they also cannot include certain letters of the alphabet so I'm thinking that's you know that's that's a pretty heavy lift and my hat goes off to both of them well, <laughs> well you know for for both of you know both of you do enjoy I think and one of the things you share in common is first of all you know an an interest in experimenting with certain kinds of restrictions and in epistolary form whether it's a novel or a play is a set of restrictions you're going to live with that um you know another thing that you've both done a lot is experiment with large groups of characters and, and Pete Gurney I'm going to have you talk a little bit about this in, in the dining room you've got six a- actors playing 57 characters, which is, you know, something we see more and more these days. Uh, two, two or three nights ago, A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder uh, won a Tony. It originated uh, here here in Hartford, uh, but it's got a similar thing where Jefferson Mays is playing a lot of characters. And, and this was uh, a play where you decided that, you know, sometimes an actor would be a seven-year-old kid and sometimes the same actor would walk out one door and come back in the other as a 70-year-old person. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I don't know whether I, I'm sure it would be absolute hubris to say that I invented the kind of free form of you having actors play num- a number of parts, but it certainly wasn't common before the dining room. Uh, the dining room seemed to at least introduce it to the contemporary theater to some. Prior to that, I, I I I know you've seen some of these Kaufman and Hart plays with cast of 30, 35. And when I first wrote The Dining Room, I, I, I sent it to Andre Bishop, who was running Playwrights Horizons, and, and he says, this is a very good play, but he said, when you get those children's scenes, we're going to have all those mothers backstage and <laughs> fussing with their children. And I, I said, and he said, that's just, it's too much for us in our little theater at Playwrights Horizons. And I said, well, it doesn't, I want the actors to play those children. You say you're going to ask actors who are, say, 20, 30, 40 years old to play seven-year-olds? And I said, yeah. And, I, and, and, and now since then, and, and, and that worked. And since then, of course, playwrights are doing it more and more. Men play women, women play men. And the freedom of casting is kind of opened up. Yeah, no. Not simply because of my play, I hasten to add, but I think it helped. But you do see a lot of stuff being done that way now. The Fiasco Theater, they do these amazing Shakespeare plays where they have seven or eight people and they just spread them across the roles. Um, the Bristol Old Vic uh, does kind of similar things yeah, yeah. Um, with with, uh, with Shakespeare stuff. And, you know, Mark Dunn, 
one of the things we're really talking about too is people who experiment uh, with the, with how to handle character and plot. You know, and, and I think Pete Gurney is one of those people. Um, and I know you you uh, in Welcome to Higby's uh, have twenty five different characters and five different storylines. And and uh, you know another person that I think you maybe associate that with is Robert Altman. The idea of these movies with these with these incredibly complex interlocking cast and storylines, right? Well, one of the one of the nice things about the fact that that my life has generally been in amateur theater, most of what I write uh, gets produced by community theaters and high schools and colleges, and they they license my plays from Samuel French. And one one of the nice things is, and I, and I hate to say this because I, I have lots of friends who are actors, and I want them to make a living, but community theaters don't have to pay their actors, so they're not looking for two and three character. Uh, plays to keep the bills down. Mm-hmm. They basically can populate their stage with as many people as they want to, and which encourages me to write these really large cast shows that people haven't really done, you know, since the 30s for economic reasons. And I did want to say that, you know, the the, um, the dining room was an inspiration to me, Pete, because it, it told me that I could go in that direction if I wanted to. And, and for that reason, I mean, my last play, Seven Interviews, is basically instead of a dining room table it's it's a desk and two or three chairs and three actors in seven different set pieces uh, uh, perform seven different forms of interviews around that same desk and using those same chairs so you know you you open the door there for you know for all, all kinds of experimentation in terms of what we can do and how we can define theater and and would you allow uh, uh, say a regional theater or a community theater to open up the casting and play other play it? You, are, are you do you make it clear you want only three actors to do it? Well, and, and I actually have said in in the script, the published script, that if if they want to to include more than three actors, that's fine. But if it's if it's a, a theater that doesn't have a lot of resources. You can do it with with uh, two women and one man. Man, I did want to say that that my first experience seeing the dining room was actually in in competition theatrical competition, where the uh, the the, the uh, theater that was performing it had only an hour to present your whole play, and what they obviously did was they chose some of the pieces. I you know, obviously mm-hmm. don't remember which ones they chose, but it fit very neatly into an hour. So it has it has that other thing going for it too. That it, it can be. It can be reduced if necessary. Yeah. You know, Pete Gurney, he's talking about uh, the, the kinds of theater companies that he works with. And I know that you've talked a lot about this over the years, that, that Broadway is so expensive and cumbersome to work with that, that you know, it, it, you look at the places that your shows are produced. And I, I know you've got uh, a project coming into the Signature Theater uh, pretty soon, but you seem to like to work with almost any kind of theater except a Broadway theater. Well, I, I think it's. I, I haven't had. I've had a few plays, not uh, three plays on Broadway. None of them did particularly well. Well, Love Letters was on Broadway for a while and did pretty well. Not not great, but I I, I think I I I'd like to talk to write for audiences that don't have to. They're not that financially invested in your play. I mean, to go to a Broadway play today. Uh, it, you're lucky if you get a ticket for less than a hundred and thirty bucks. And I wanted to take a couple of my grandchildren to the theater, but I decided with my wife, myself, two or three grandchildren. And if there's three in town, I have to take all three. That's a huge amount of money, and everybody knows it. 
when they walk into the theater. The kids know it, we know it, and it, we, we look at the, th- at the play in a different way. Gee, that scenery isn't good. They could have spent more on the chorus line, etc. We're off Broadway still, yeah, and particularly at the Signature, which where you can get a twenty-five dollar ticket. You speak to younger people. You speak to many different kinds of people, and the whole audience effect is, for me, much more rewarding. It's almost like buying a stock in some ways. I, I go to see a lot of shows in Barrow Street or the Vineyard or New York Theater Workshop, and if the shows are good, they do move to Broadway. And so you bought the stock at forty, you know, and, and now it's up at one hundred and fifty. Uh, <laughs> that's that's a good way of. I never thought of that, but that's a very good way of looking at it. It's, it's theatrical appreciation. Yeah, and, um, and some plays don't work as well on Broadway. There's a very good young playwright named Will Eno. Yeah. And I saw his play, uh, The Realistic Joneses, at, in New Haven. Mm-hmm. It was done by this almost the same act, certainly professional actors. It was absolutely terrific. I haven't seen it on Broadway, but it's not the kind of play you want to pay 150 bucks to see. <laughs> um, you know, I just, if we could just swing back to letters for one last second here, because we are uh, in the final segment, I should tell you that we are going to talk to this young man, Travis White. He's a, as a college student, uh, uh, he, he, it, he could almost be a play. It could either be a Mark Dunn play or a Pete Gurney play. He decided to create a project where college students would just grab the phone book of somewhere and, and write a letter to to a person that they didn't even know. Many of these college students had almost no experience ever writing letters before. So since both of you have, have worked in this epistolary form, one question I'm going to ask you uh, is, whose letters do you envy the most or, or admire the most? Um, I mean, you know, there's just such a joy in reading, say, the letters of Henry James. There's, there's some way in which, I mean, they are just these masterpieces, but also, of course, there's that sense that we're eavesdropping on a life. So I, I'm, I'm curious, maybe, Mark Dunn, if you want to go first, uh, is, there, are there, is there anybody whose letters you, you loved or maybe even whose letters inspired you a little bit as you worked well, in the Epistolary Forum? you should ask that question because there's a, I mean, obviously there's a format from to sort of the literary use of of, uh, of letter writing, but I'm, I'm in the middle of researching a new novel in which I'm having to spend a lot of time reading mass observation diaries that the people who lived through uh, World War II all, all around the United Kingdom uh, wrote and then turned in, and these are basically day-to-day accounts of their lives um, in time of war. And it's very interesting because some some of them know that they're running for posterity. They're they're watching how they express themselves. They're trying to be very careful. And then some some of these um, writers they just let loose. They complain about this. They complain about that. That they're, they're laced with profanity. And it's like and then they turn them in. And it's like okay, I, I did did my job. And it just shows such a range in terms of how people were were living through this war. Um, that it was it was more eye-opening than any other books I could have used for my research. Mm. So, Pete Gurney, how about you? Do you have favorite letter writers? Are there people? Well, you mentioned Henry James. Yeah. <laughs> I, I stole him. Say that. Yeah. But if, if there are too many people who write who wrote good letters. I like to write. I, I like to read Faulkner's letters when when you can get a hold of them. I like. I like to read Steinbeck's letters. I. Uh, I like to read Hemingway's letters, even though they can be uh, <laughs> irritating at times. So, 
I, I just I like, but I I wouldn't want to pin it down to one. I I just I like the idea of hearing an individual write, speak to the world or to somebody else through his or her letters. And there is a sense. I mean, I, I think I got the same two volumes uh, that you're talking about. These massive volumes of of Hemingway letters, which uh, turn out to be unsurprisingly Hemingway-esque uh, in all the ways that are both both good and bad. But you do sort of wonder. You know, in this age of non-letter writing, what what's I mean, is are someone going to publish the, you know, the emails of, of somebody? I mean, what's going to happen to that form, the collected letters of? Uh, I assume there just won't be those anymore, right? I, 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 I certainly can think about that. Yes, I, I certainly. <laughs> I wouldn't buy the collected emails <laughs> of anybody. But yes, I, I, I mean, I don't know the answer to that. I think I'm beginning to think that if we begin, to, if we start teaching penmanship in the schools, which is just not taught today, the the form might emerge and and survive. I, I have to say, I, I'm not going to read them now, but I have been receiving unsigned Sphinxian postcards. There's somebody who types postcards to me. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, and so, I mean, and I'll, I will read one Sphinxian postcard. Please use your head. If that does not work, then use your index finger and thumb. Under no circumstances, use your fist. That's the end of the postcard. That, and, you know, and, and they're all like that. They're typed Sphinxian postcards. Yeah. Somebody is uh, still experimenting with these forms. Um, so well, there's, I, I am a, I'm afraid that we're, because of the ephemeral nature of emails and Facebook messages and stuff, that we're, that we're losing a record here. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm with Pete that we should find some way to at least, at least give a life to these, this conversation we're having with each other, or, or it's going to be gone. It's going to be gone forever. Well, and, and don't you agree that it, it, in the in the mail you get, you still get mail among the catalogs and the appeals for uh, donations from various charities. If you see a letter with a handwritten address on it, that's that's the if not the first thing you want to read, it might be the la- you might save it for last. But that's what interests you the most because an individual is going to be speaking to you personally. That's right. Across the uh, the envelope. Well, we're going to say thank you to, uh, and a heartfelt thank you to both of you, Mark Dunn, playwright and novelist. His books include LMNOP and American Decameron. Uh, Pete Gurney, if I were to name all of his works, uh, we would that would be the end of the show, basically. Uh, and and so we, we won't, but we do want to, once again, remind you about this event on the, on the 27th at the Warner Theater uh, in Torrington, Love Letters Performed by James Earl Jones and Stocker Channing for the benefit of a very good uh, charity. Pete Gurney, I have to say, tell you one last thing. As I was researching this show and getting ready for it, I discovered that my late father, who was a, a playwright, and you have the same agent, Gilbert Parker. Uh, it was just, a, it's the same, second time Gilbert Parker's name has come up in connection with my show in a week. So the universe is trying to tell me something. But Yeah, uh, a, a good man, very much alive, and very influential on my writing and my career. Well, great to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining us. We're going to be back in uh, just a second with this young man who is trying to get his generation of non-letter writers to change their ways.
I'm taking a poll. Email me with your choice for worst letter of the alphabet. But I think we know how it's all going to come out, right? I'm looking at you, you. I mean, I'm looking at you, the, the letter, you. Never mind. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Josh Nalea and Katie Pikus. Greg Hill appeared in our intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Larry Hagman. For show pages, articles, and copies of the Faith Middleton Show staff's gushy 1970s letters to David Soule, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, The Nose copes with an increasingly polarized political scene by talking about the World Cup. And now, back to Colin. What is the worst letter of the alphabet? Um, we'll do a poll. You can email me, Colin, C-O-L-I-N, at WNPR.org. Tell me the worst letter of the alphabet <laughs> and why. All right. But we're not talking about letters of the alphabet anymore. That was with Mark Dunn. Now we're back to talking about letters. Travis White is joining us. He's a student at Central Michigan University and the founder of Letter for Better, uh, in which uh, members of his generation write letters to, for the most part, total strangers. Um, so, Travis White, this began partly because you were the kid at college who wasn't getting letters, right? That is exactly, exactly right. I started it um, my first couple months in college um, where I was off on my own and had my own mailbox, um, but no mail was coming to it. So, um, you know, I, I kind of knew what it was like, you know, the, the feeling, um, you know, when your mailbox was empty, um, you kind of felt empty on the inside too, a little bit. And, um, you know, my roommate at the time had a girlfriend that was out of state that, uh, I kid you not wrote him almost every day, mm -hmm. I feel. And he would always rub it in my face, you know, joking around. That was always the big joke that, you know, he'd always have mail. And we were out to lunch one day, and uh, he had an email sent to him telling him that he had a package waiting for him at the front desk of our residence hall. And joking around, I, I told him, I said, you know what? I think I'm just going to go online one day, and I'm going to find the address to somebody random, and I'm going to write them a letter. We're mm -hmm. going to become pen pals. And that was a joke. It started right there, and, and we kind of laughed about it a bit until a couple of days later, I actually did receive uh, my first letter while I was in college, and that was from my marching band back home. Uh, I was the drum major my junior and senior year, and, you know, they all signed a card, you know, telling me how much they missed me, and, you know, they wanted me to come back. And, and the feeling that that gave me was something that is is indescribable, that it's very hard to to recreate that feeling. And that's what I wanted to do. I, I wanted to take that feeling that I had and I wanted to give it to others, even if they you know, were complete strangers. So I took our joke that we uh, came up with at lunch and um, I, I made it a reality. And that's exactly what we do. How big has this gotten? I mean, how many people are participating in, or do you, maybe you don't even know how many people are participating in Letter for Better or how many people are getting these letters? We've started, um, we were pretty small right off the bat. You know, it, it was a a pretty big college campus. And I think that was our biggest struggle was actually getting people to help us participate. So our first year we ended with maybe, um, four or five people that showed up, you know, every other week and, and would continuously write letters. Um, you know, once we were actually given a chance to advertise, um, we were able to, you know, grow and we were on NPR, uh, last November. And since then we have just have grown, um, to where at the end of this year, we, you know, kind of had people come in and out throughout the year and maybe ended with, um, you know, 30 people, not necessarily continuous, but we ended the year sending out about 
430 letters around the United States. Now, one thing you, you discovered early on was you have to do this the right way, right? One of the first letters you sent, uh, a, policeman, a policeman showed up, right? Yeah, um, it was a lot of trial and error. Definitely learning from our mistakes um, to where we realized that there were some you know, toes that we had to make sure that we weren't stepping on to where, yeah, one of my first couple letters, my very first um, reply to these letters was a police officer um, in my office. Somebody that I, you know, sent a letter to was actually afraid that somebody was stalking them, mm-hmm. um, you know, which was kind of unfortunate. But uh, after that, we kind of learned, you know, from that mistake, I guess. Um, so, like, now we include a business card in every single one of our envelopes describing what a letter for better does and, and where we actually get their addresses. Um, we get them from an online database. It does not take any type of research at all. Um, you know, and that was the one thing that we kind of want those people to know that we're writing to is that, you know, we didn't do that much research to find their addresses to where it was all public. Um, we don't know a single thing about them. You know, the only thing that we may know is possibly their address and maybe their name. Um, a lot of the times where we get them, it's not necessarily the names aren't accurate. Um, so when we actually send our letters, we address them to current residents. So, Anybody that is living there at that time can actually open up our letter and, uh, you know, read the types of things that we have to say and, and kind of our positive message. Travis, I've only got about 30 seconds left, but um, have you had to sort of acquaint members of your generation with the style of writing letters? I mean, there, there may be some people your age who really just haven't addressed an envelope, maybe. Yeah, that is a, a pretty big struggle, actually, that there's some people who don't know how to fill out an envelope. And it was kind of funny because it was mentioned earlier, but um, I myself use a fountain pen mm-hmm. when I write you know, my, my letter. So I'm going way back. I'm throwing it way back. Um, and yeah, a lot of people haven't experienced those things and actually writing letters and, and, uh, they really enjoy it. They have a lot of fun. Travis White, so great to talk to you. The organization is called Letter for Better. Get online. You can find out more about it. Then stay offline and write a letter. Thanks to everybody who helped out today, especially Pete Gurney. What an honor to have him. I'm Kyone Wolf. All right, I'll give it a try. Dear, dear, this is so complicated. I'm just going to go back to the easy way. Skywriting!